Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. and welcome to another case-cracking episode of Cinelit. For today, the game is afoot as we are looking at the clues in the mystery case of the Sherlock Holmes film series, starring Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. John H. Watson. My name is Adam Marsh and I'm your host today, and today I'm joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Yeah, good. Thanks, Adam. I've uh, I've got the the old deer stalker and cape on today, or uh, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm Watson to your homes. I don't know. You look resplendent. Um, yeah, so basically, when we started doing this podcast many, nearly two years ago now, uh, one of the areas we wanted to look at was crime cinema, or, or one of the, as I wanted to look at was crime cinema. And we started with the best will in the world to do a series within Cinelit of crime cinema, and then it's kind of gone out of the window. We did one on early silent cinema crime and early gangster movies. And then we've kind of just not really done much since. But we did we did one on uh, French Connection movies. So we, we, we've dipped our toe in occasionally. But we thought we would resurrect that strand here today by doing uh, an episode on the 1939 Sherlock Holmes film series. Yeah, and how, how better to do this, really? Because, of course, in, in that uh, silent uh, session that we did, one of the films we covered was uh, Sherlock Holmes Battle yeah. from 1900 the first Holmes movie on record, apparently, 30 seconds long, and we managed to talk about it for about five minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> we spoke um, way longer so than... So, yeah, if, if we do that sort of ratio today, um, you know, we'll be talking about hour-long movies for five hours, <laughs> but I, I don't think we're going to get there. But, uh, yeah, Holmes, Holmes is an interesting character in terms of cinema because, of course, he's, he's from the, the, the great literary mm. background, Conan Doyle's uh, famous stories around the, the, the late Victorian era and um, early part of the 20th century. But uh, apparently it's said that Holmes is um, supposedly the most portrayed human character on screen. I, th- I think <laughs> Dracula and maybe Jesus and other people have, have uh, been portrayed just as much. But Holmes is is often cited as being, however you define a human character. He's he, rather than a sort of fantasy figure like a Dracula or, or 
you know, any sort of supernatural creature or whatever. Or living embodiments of a deity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're saying that uh, they're, they're saying that Holmes is the most portrayed, and I think he's been played by something like 70, 70 or eighty different actors, if not more. Um, Hound of the Baskervilles was adapted in Germany quite a lot through the teens, twenties, and thirties of, of the twentieth century. Mm, it was a big book, wasn't it, in, in Germany? Yeah, they had those whole series of pulp crime books, and the, the Conan Doyle ones were republished quite a lot in Germany. Yeah, and Baskerville has, has re- remained very popular over there, and, and of course, it seems to be the go-to text for for anyone filming homes really but uh, popular in britain as well in the in the early 20s an actor called uh, ellie norwood ellie norwood um played homes in over 40 films in just a three-year period you know talk about cranking them out most of them were shorts uh, a couple of features then actors like arthur wantner peter cushing uh, jeremy brett uh, vasily livanov in in russia mm. um Robert Downey Jr., Benedict Cumberbatch have uh, become identified with the role and have played, all of those actors have played the character multiple times. Um, and there have been a lot of interesting one-offs as well. Quite often with the one-off, you get people not necessarily playing Holmes, but sometimes playing a sort of variation on him or an insane character who thinks they're Holmes or something like that. We've got to mention uh, Sherlock Hound, uh, early oh, yeah. how uh, Miyazaki worked there. I think that's one of my early um, introductions to Sherlock Holmes. I think my dad bought me the Sherlock Hound video when yeah, I was a kid, yeah. and he bought me a, a, the collection of the four novels as well. So yeah. I think that was my prob- my entry point to Sherlock Holmes, as, I, as I'm sure many Japanese children <laughs> have oh, the yeah. same what, experience. What a, way, yeah. what a way to start, you mm. know. And, uh, I'm perhaps unusual in this. In I, I, I love the Holmes comedies as well. I really, really enjoyed Holmes and Watson a couple mm. of years ago, which a lot of people didn't. I, I saw it on Boxing Day on release, and, and I think had I seen it on any other day of the year, I'd, I'd have probably hated it like everyone else. But seeing it on Boxing Day when it came out, it's a great Boxing Day film. Yeah. They do, they do keep going, uh, 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 having a stab at the Holmes comedies, don't they? Over yeah. the years, I mean, obviously yeah. the the one that I remember from my childhood was without a clue, Ben Kingsley and. And Michael Caine, Michael Caine is, yeah. yeah, which is one of those examples of a sort of fake homes, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the one I love from about ten years before that is uh, Paul Morrissey's with uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and most of the great sort of British comedy mm. establishments of the the sort of fifties and sixties. Again, a, a much hated film, but I love it so much that I've even got the poster, you know. <laughs> but as 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 they say in the movies, and as they say in Highlander, there can be only one. Mm. I think and. I'm certainly saying that it's Basil Rathbone. Um, how, what, what's your feeling about Rathbone as Holmes? Well, he, he certainly defined defined Holmes, didn't he? He was the first one that way you, you would go, okay, this is the definitive Holmes. In terms yeah. of ev- everyone who's come along since has sort of had a little bit of Rathbone in there before. Well, I, I think so. whether they're conscious or subconsciously, I think that's became, well, Holmes is that kind of character that as portrayed by Basil Rathbone. Maybe maybe Robert Downey Jr. strayed furthest away from that. I guess in those in those in, in the more serious adaptations, but you know Basil Rathbone, Derbyshire educated by Basil Rathbone. I should I should say uh, yes, Repton yeah. School. Repton School um, just just down the road from where I grew up in yeah. Willington. Oh, so, there you go. So we're, we're 
yeah, as a kid, I wasn't a big fan of Repton. They were like the, the enemy. Yeah. Image. But yeah, the, the school's got its reputation and Rathbone, you know. Yeah, Rathbone was, was there. Was... He's got a blue plaque in Repton, so, yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it must be bona fide. But he, yeah, as I say, he's the definitive Holmes scholar. David Stuart Davis, one of the preeminent Holmesian I think he's Holmesian. Is he? He's British, isn't he? Yeah. So I think I think in Britain they call them Holmesian scholars. In America they call them Sherlockians. Yeah. Which feels apt. I think um, I, I don't know. I don't know why. It just feels like a British scholar would be yeah, called more, Holmesian. More, more reserved. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So he he described the, he described the casting as the closest to creating the definitive Sherlock Holmes on screen. I think he's right. I think I, I yeah. think that's not the problem. <laughs> yeah. I think the problem comes when you start talking about the elephant in the room here, don't you? You start talking about Nigel Bruce's Watson. I think yeah. that's where yeah. Yeah. people fall down There's on these the films. Division. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and um, uh, again, you know, I think you can probably tell from what we've just said about other other Holmes films that uh, I, I I love the Holmes comedies, and so I that my love of those sort of I think stems from loving Nigel Bruce in these films. So you're, you're a Nigel Nigel Bruce, a, yeah. Well, a, a I prover. rewatched all the films just before Christmas, before I even knew we were doing this podcast. So I, oh no, I, no, I totally hijacked your Christmas viewing to yeah, do this. Why, yeah, why yeah. not? Why not? You know, but I had set December aside to 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 dig into the 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 box set of the Holmes films which has got David Stewart Davis all yeah. over it. You know, mm. he's written notes and done a couple of great commentaries on there. Um, really good home scholar. And I, I watched the films this time with an eye on Nigel Bruce in particular, because I thought he always gets a, a sort of bum rap, yeah. you know, and I'm going to really watch these films focusing on his character rather than Holmes or Moriarty or Mrs. Hudson or anyone else. And, and it was fascinating to do that because, yeah, you do get a sort of bumbling buffoon, okay, you know, throughout the series. But um, every now and then he he gets to do stuff, you know, and he does stuff and does it right, you know, and, and helps out with the case. And there's even one film where he, he is instrumental in mm. solving the case, uh, House of Fear, yeah. 1945, where, where um, Holmes rather takes a bit of a backseat on that one. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to discuss that in more depth. But, uh, yeah, I can see why people don't like Nigel Bruce, and he certainly isn't the, the character that Conan Doyle wrote. But No, uh, I mean, it's one of those things... What a great movie character, and what a great Nigel Bruce character. Well, that's I mean, it's, it's funny you should say that, because I, mean, I, I went in with a similar thing, not knowing that you were doing the same thing, but I went in there thinking, he can't be as, all, as bad as all that. Sure, I mean, I mean, in my head, he is that bumbling idiot, and what have you done to Watson kind of hmm. mentality. And, and yes, you're right. He is. He is its own creation, its own its own Watson in some ways. But it's not nearly as bad as I, as I remembered. No, I no. think you I think you blow it up in your in your memory of how bumbling and how stupid he is. And he's yeah. not. He's just occasionally yeah. slightly. I, I think there's. I think there's precedent around that time because not only in Bruce's own career because he he was sort of known for this sort of shtick, you know. Mm. But also you've got the the uh, Charteris and, and Caldicott characters. That's right, yeah. Uh, from Hitchcock's Lady Vanishers, who who were put in as a very similar sort of partly comedy relief, one foot in the comedy relief and one in the the unfolding drama, you know. And that's the position that I think Nigel Bruce as Watson takes in these films. I'd also say we, we did a podcast on Hammer's Dracula movies uh, a while ago with Kevin Lyons, and uh, we were saying then how Thorley Walters could mm. do this. In, and you see Thorley in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, riffing on his own bumbling persona, very much like a Nigel Bruce type 
actor, you know, who had that sort of career where he'd play these sort of bumbling figures, uh, slightly upper class, you know, often very sort of eccentric and stumbling his way through the film. And Thorley Walters uses that in Dracula, Prince of Darkness as a means of having his character fool the authorities. He's, he's like a lunatic in an asylum, yeah. but he, he, he sort of gets his own way and manages to get one over on them by using this, this sort of buffoonery. And there are elements of that in, in a good way, in a sort of positive way, in Nigel Bruce's character, I think. Sometimes he does that on his own. Sometimes Rathbone's Holmes sort of plays on it and sends him out somewhere, knowing that, that this whole routine that he goes through is going to distract people's attention while Holmes gets on with the business yeah. of investigating the case. So it's really cleverly used across the whole series, I think. And then as, as, as a Watson and Nigel Bruce fan, I really do love House of Fear, where it's, it's his movie. Mm. You know, it's very much his film. I think the interesting thing about Watson, uh, regardless of your take on Watson, of Nigel Bruce's take on Watson, prior to this, Watson really hadn't figured in the the on-screen adaptations of Sherlock Holmes. It was very much like, well, Sherlock Holmes is a solo character. And by the end of this series, I I think it would be unthinkable to do a Holmes adaptation without Watson. Yeah, again, this established that yeah. that because um, even even Doyle, you know, the the the, the idea of the, the 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 stories and the novels is that Watson Watson's sort of working pretty much as as a companion and secretary to Holmes, and he's he's sort of along for the ride, and he's on the cases. Mm. He's basically there to, to to write them all down and 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 keep a journal of what's happening. You know, so he is in that sense, he's he's sort of a background figure. Even even in in the original text, you know, and and uh, he's relating and, and capturing the story of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, you know, and this series and and Twentieth Century Fox, of course, kicked it off sure. with with their two films in the late thirties. So I think they can take the credit for for doing this, for saying, yeah, we 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 need we need this team. But of course, I suppose what what you've got here is we were in a situation in the in the uh, period of the early talkies where um, there'd been a big hit in uh, the Thin Man movie, the Nick sure, and Nora yeah. Charles mm-hmm. film, and uh, that had, had had its own spin-offs and, and was developing into a series by the late 30s. And I suppose the, the concept that you have sort of twin detectives or a double act working on these cases was a good dramatic one for, for cinema because your your main guy had someone to sort of uh, um, talk to Bounce as an off, audience yeah. representative. Well, I mean, that was happening yeah. a lot in in those in those particular those serialized films. You yeah. know, your Charlie Chans, your your Mister Motos, and things like that. You always had a companion, Charlie Chan, number one son, you know, yeah. number two yeah. son, number five son, whatever. Then you had like Torchy Blaine, you had, you had Torchy Blaine in that series, and you had the, the male detective as the as the spin off there. So yeah. you always had that dynamic in those in those those formats whether that was a, a case of like expediency we, we've got an hour to tell the story we need to we we need to be firing on all cylinders here and, and getting the information across because these were in hour-long movies they weren't like yeah. full features i think in, in some ways that developed that, that that style and then obviously that when when sherlock holmes went from 20th century fox to universal and universal kind of repositioned it as one of these b-movie series yes yeah. 
it was it was perfectly positioned to capitalise on that and crank them out over a three or four year period. Yeah, because we we've divided up the Universal films into into three separate groups, and then we're we're going to sort of talk about the Fox ones mm. initially as well as as a fourth, you know. And um, uh, those Fox ones, uh, they they run sort of eighty minutes or so. They're they're very lavish. They're designed as A features. Yeah. Um, so they're very different to the Universal mm. ones in that sense. And I I think. It's not really documented anywhere that I've read why why Fox decided to quit after two movies. I I wonder if maybe they bit off slightly more than they could chew, and thought, well, they then they then saw all of these other the sort of B movie series sort of coming along around the same time, and thinking, well, we can't really sustain this on these budgets, so we've got a choice here. We either we either reduce them to the level of. A, a, a Charlie Chan or something, and crank them out and make them sixty-five minutes, and and spend less money on them, or we stop them altogether. And and they they seem to have elected to stop. So they did. I did. I did read somewhere that there was some sort of uh, negotiation with the Doyle Estate, trying to clear the rights to to, to to do more. Right. Was one of the reasons that they stated was why. They didn't want to. They didn't end up not continuing with them. However, as you say, it could have been backed up by yeah, uh, by, I mean, by budgetary concerns. Even, even that would have involved money at course, some of course, stage yeah, of the yeah, discussion. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's that's most well, when, likely when, where it well, all Universal fell, took it over and they paid. I think it was like three hundred thousand dollars for the rights for seven years. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the rights for twenty. All, that was to all. The, well, a, a number of the stories. Twenty-one yeah, stories, 21, and but yeah. as part of the contract, they had to do three a year. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, three yeah. films a year, and two of them had to be direct adaptations. Yeah, yeah. However yeah. loose that was. Well, what, <laughs> yeah. What's interesting with the adaptations is they always say they're doing it in the credits, oh, and, and yeah. then they they sort of they they put a couple of lines in from a story, or they put one idea in from like the five orange pips or something, you know, and then it's away with with oh we'll we'll just do what we want to do now but uh, i think to, to to kick off briefly with the the, the two fox films mm. as we've said they're, they're they're more lavish than the universal ones rathbone and bruce seem to be shifting from studio to studio at the time i'm not sure if either of them were, were sort of contracted to a studio they seem to be able to jump from place to place and and uh, um and were, were both getting lots and lots of work around this time uh, Rathbone, in fact, was was working uh, quite a lot at Universal. He, yeah. he was he was a, a sort of mainstay of their their sort of late thirties and early forties horror material. You know, um, he, he he played Frankenstein in uh, in Son of Frankenstein mm. in in that same year thirty nine, um, and um, yeah, the Fox films. The first one they they decided to kick off with hand of the baskervilles because why wouldn't you yeah yeah and then, but in some ways it is an unusual it is sometimes in some ways it is unusual to start off with that film because holmes is like like as we've discussed on other podcasts yeah. it's that format of of, of lead, having I mean, your lead character out of the film for many years yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah he just goes I, away I, th- I think people or, or certainly film producers who, who aren't always the cleverest guys you know uh, often when when they think yeah let's let's make a homes movie the one they've heard of is hound of the baskervilles you know yeah. and um uh, and and it's the one they think they can exploit as well. They oh, it's got this monster dog in it. You know, yeah. great. You know, and then they hit these two problems. They suddenly look at the material and think, well, a Holmes isn't really in it all that much, and b how are we going to make the dog scary? You know, and and I think 
to Fox's credit here, they they get around both of those problems arguably better than anybody yeah. else ever has done. I think definitely with the, with them bringing Holmes back into it because he's barely off screen in this in yeah, this yeah, version of yeah. the, uh, uh, of the film. Um, and what what they do with the Holmes character sets a tradition which was continued gleefully throughout the Universal series. Yeah. Not only Holmes in disguise, but as the Universal films progressed, everyone in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. Even to the point where in one of the later Universal films, Watson finally catches on to the fact that Holmes sometimes dresses up as somebody else. And this entomologist comes in. It's in, it's in The Spider-Woman, 1944. Yeah. This eminent entomologist comes into 221B Baker Street and Watson sort of looks at us, you know, sort of breaks the fourth wall almost. And oh, we all know it's Sherlock Holmes in disguise. And he starts tugging at this guy's beard and sort of joking with him and joshing with him. And, of course, the gag is that Holmes then walks, yeah. walks in in the background, you know. And it is a guy in a, a crazy beard and crazy wig that looks like it's fake, you know. But, yeah, the series really did play on that whole disguise thing. And it's Hand of the Baskervilles from Fox that kicks all that off. And the disguise in that is is, is pretty impressive as yeah, well. It it's is. not like a lot of these things you watch, I mean, particularly in some of the latest Universal ones, you know it. So you, you can tell it's Basil Rathbone straight away. Yeah, you know, it's not yeah. it's not wrong. But in this one, you have to, like, there was a good couple of double double takes. I'm thinking, is that is that him? And yeah. yeah, it was it was really good makeup. I remember not acknowledging that as I was watching. And, and Rathbone doing this sort of ludicrous sort of, I don't know, is it Cornish or something accent, playing this great wild sort of hermit mm. living in this cave and he's playing a zither and talking about he talks about oh it's a it's a zither zoo or something, mm. you know, and the, Yeah, he's great. Really really good, you know, manages to disguise his voice in, in a way that you think, Oh yeah, it is this over the top character is is it or isn't it Basil Rathbone, you know, under all that? Yeah, yeah. Because, um, again, the series and other series like it would often have these sort of larger-than-life background characters mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Think of, again, in 1939, Bela Lugosi's uh, Igor in Son of Frankenstein, who steals the show from Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone, you know, yeah. which is some going. So audiences were used to these figures being in these sort of films. And so if you see one in Hand of the Baskervilles, the tendency would be to just think, oh, yeah, it's one of those great eccentric uh, sort of supporting characters that we, that we love, you know. And then when it turns out to be Sherlock in disguise, you know, it, it is it is quite a surprise, you mm. know, or can be if, if you're not in the know. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the two that they did, they based the first one, obviously, on Hand of the Baskervilles, and then they went to the... The, the stage adaptation that was massively popular yeah, late Victorian right. yeah, period yeah. early 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 20th century the William Gillette yeah. play yeah. Um, which for many years was the preeminent version of visual version of Holmes yeah, wasn't I think, it I think that was first staged in 1899 mm. and then ran through the early part of the 20th century and um, yeah Adventures of Sherlock Holmes which is a bit of a weird title for, for part two of, mm. a, of a projected franchise you'd, you'd sort of think Shouldn't they have started with that and then gone to Hand of the Baskervilles next? But uh, but yeah, they called it Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and yeah, it, it is supposedly based on the play. Although they sort of throw that out of the window pretty early yeah, on. Yeah. But I, I really like that film. I, I, the idea of the the killer with the the sort of South American bolus uh, is is great. And when you see that in action, it knocks the head off a statue. Mm. Um, you know, is is brilliant. You know, okay, we're we're in nineteen thirty nine. We 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 can't we can't really show 
decapitation on film, although there, there had been other movies like The Man Who Reclaimed His Head that, that dealt with um, decapitation as mm. a sort of central theme, you know. And here they, they managed to get it on screen by having a statue decapitated, and it's a great, great scene. Uh, I, th- I think it's a really strong film, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It tends to get overlooked, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, for, for obvious reasons, it was like it was like the one that they decided not to do any more on. For, you know, effectively, if you look at it in in in, in monetary terms, but yeah, as you say, I think it was like what what if Fox continued on with an an A level budget for these series? Yeah, I I think we would have got more. Well, I call them adaptations, as as we've said, I, they they were sort of taking. I think they'd have used a lot more of the titles of, of the Conan Doyle stories. Yeah. Um, and they'd have kept them fairly lavish. I think they'd have, they'd have reduced the budgets, but maybe not to the level that Universal were. They'd have retained Rathbone and, and, and Bruce, I'm, I'm sure. Mm. I, I think they, they may well have, have used Moriarty as a, as a regular villain. Because um, Moriarty is interesting throughout this series, he sort of dips in and out every now and then. He's always killed off by falling off a off a cliff edge or a high building, mm. and then he comes back played by a different actor. You yeah, get Lionel yeah. Atwill, George Zuko, and Henry Daniel mm. uh, playing playing Moriarty, almost as if he's a different character. You know, okay, I, we, we've seen him die. It's it's a bit a bit like the villain version of James Bond, I guess. Yeah. Where, where okay. When you see him fall off a cliff or off a high building or off a ledge or something, he's really dead. But then the the idea of Moriarty is sort of adopted by the next criminal mastermind, yeah. and he comes along and uh, may, maybe maybe you can read the films like that. I don't know. Well, we do. You do see that sort of like the influences of pop culture on these things you, you know it's often known as a, as a comic book trope that no one's ever dead in comic books they always yeah. come back you know and it's like well well that's come from things like this yes yeah, yeah. you know from, from from those those types of films those serials feeding into comic books at their creation and then sure. now comic books are feeding back into cinema with characters never dying in movies oh, yeah, <laughs> by, by the mid-30s we've already got you know some of the sort of established comic book characters that are still popular today yeah you know? And yeah, those those ideas are you, you can see that filtering back, especially into these sort of B movie series. And, Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, of course, the one we've not mentioned is the Dick, the Dick Tracy series, which yeah. directly relates to that style of comic book character, you know, and, and was the first series to really bring that to to the screen in a sort of concerted way. While we're on Moriarty, one thing that you do get in in the Universal series as it progresses is. You also, when when they're not using Moriarty, they, they often have a sort of faux Moriarty. You've got the Giles Conover character played by Miles Mander, who, who's fantastic. You, you've got the Spider Woman, mm. the, the brilliant Gail Sondergaard, who I who I think is the best villain of the entire fourteen films. Yeah, and she even got her own spin-off sequel. The Spider oh, really? Woman Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah. I don't know With, where, where again, she doesn't play the same character. <laughs> so they even carry that on, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, they did a Spider Woman sequel, sequel, but she's playing a different person in it, but with the same sort of motivation. Right. But 
yeah, what a great film Spider Woman is, mm. and, uh, and she again she comes along and and steals that from Rathbone and Bruce mm. um, in a, in a way that none of the Moriarty's ever quite did. You know? No, well, the Moriarty's in some ways are reproductions of Holmes. What if Holmes was mm. evil? Kind of that's 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 the kind of dynamic. Yeah. Whereas I think when you bring in the, the female protagonist, it's a it's a different dynamic, and I think that's more opportunity to to stand out and steal <laughs> steal the picture from him. Another thing you get with, with the villains in, in the Holmes series, and this, this happens a lot in the Universal ones, is you, you get a Moriarty or a Moriarty-type figure. You get your supervillain, but often Holmes and Watson are pitted against a team of three people. Mm. And in one of the films, it's, it's four. I think in The Woman in Green, there's, there is actually Moriarty in there. Yeah. And then you've got Moriarty. You've got you. You normally get Moriarty or a, a supervillain type character. You get a femme fatale, mm-hmm. and again in Spider Woman, they're sort of combined into into the same body. You know, so you get Moriarty or some kind of supervillain. You get a femme fatale. You and you get a sort of brutish henchman or a sort of weasley creepy killer who does all the sort of spade work. Mm. And then in Woman in Green, you also get a creepy housekeeper as well, yeah. who's in on it all. So you've got this gang of four. But yeah, often they use a sort of trio of villains, your supervillain, your femme fatale, and your guy who does all the murders as a team working against Holmes and Watson. And that's sustained throughout quite a few of the... That's in sort of around about half of the film. Yeah, yeah. So it became a thing, you know. Yeah. Maybe it was just that he was... A, they definitely had a rep company feel to it as well. So it was oh. like maybe sometimes, sometimes it was just like, well, let's bring back Thingy, or he can be in this yeah, one. Cause yeah, because when, when you look through the cast list, I mean, you get Lionel Atwill playing Moriarty, but then, um, you know, uh, a- actors like him are appearing throughout the franchise in, in other parts as well. Hilary Brooke appears in a couple. Uh, she plays the villainess in one, but she's playing a supporting character in another... And quite often you you'll get you'll get um, very familiar character players, people like Halliwell Hobbs, who pop up in 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 different roles in the series. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, look through the credits of these films, and you'll find a lot of the same actors in them, but never playing the same part. No, no. So we we get going back to the end. We get the end. Of, we end of the Fox movies, and um, there's a three year gap yeah. where we have. The, the gap between uh, Fox letting the rights expire and yeah. Universe picking up. However, that wasn't the end of, of Sherlock Holmes no, and no, Nigel Bruce no. and Dan Basil Rathbone. Well, what, what happens in between, of course, is the Second World War breaks out. Yeah. And then, well, in 1941, America gets involved yeah, in the war. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking before that, actually, it was like they, they continued their duo on radio yeah, for over did. 200 episodes yeah. between yeah. 1939 yeah, and very, 1946. So very in American Homes... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce were constantly being reinforced as Holmes and Watson. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, radio in those days was was pretty Mm. much like TV is now. It was just the the thing everyone experienced in their home. When you wanted entertainment at Mm. home, you put on the wireless. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess guess when when Universal were crunching the figures, um, having a nationally recognised duo as Holmes and Watson yeah, it's, made it it's fairly easy. Like, well, why, why don't Fox want to carry on doing yeah. this? We'll, we'll, we'll nab it, you know, mm. and uh, good on them. Yeah. And uh, as we've said, in the meantime, war breaks out. Yeah. America gets involved in the war. And that identifies the, the first three Universal movies. Mm. We've got Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, and Sherlock Holmes in Washington. We should mention as well at this point that... Um, uh, John Rawlins, who was a sort of jobbing Universal director and ended up working in westerns in 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 the in the fifties, 
handled the first movie, but all of the the ne- the, the remainder of the the series, the next eleven films were all directed by the same guy, Roy William Neal. And he, like Basil Rathbone and like a lot of the other people we've mentioned, Lionel Atwill and and George Zuko, he was heavily involved in um, Universal's B-movie horror unit as well. So he he was not only churning out the Holmes films three a year, but he was doing a lot of other films as well, you know, at a similar sort of level. He he died of a heart attack in 1946. Maybe that's not not disconnected there. Yeah, his his doctor was probably, uh, you know, uh, on set, sort of looking at the veins throbbing in his forehead, (laughs) you know. uh, But uh, I'm often working with a lot of the same actors as well across the Holmes films and in all the other stuff he was doing. But yeah, he 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 only lasted five months, I think, after after the the last film, Dressed to Kill. Yeah, and then uh, unfortunately it was curtains. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, what what a what a what a run of films. Even if he just made those eleven Holmes films. That would be that would be a legacy, you know. All the other stuff he did as well is is fantastic. So we we get we get to the war years, and yes, they 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 do the the monumental decision to update it to the nineteen forties, the contemporary period. Although, of course, having said that, Holmes was always contemporary. Well, that's what their argument yeah, was. Yeah. Well, Holmes is contemporary. And, and, Holmes is yeah, and still is with Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's Holmes, and I think Holmes is a figure that you can do that with. Yeah. Every generation can have it. I think that's one of the. I think that's one thing when people forget when when people look back and say, "Oh, they 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 updated and brought him so he was fighting the Nazis," as if as if it was a different time period. Yeah, it was like, yeah. well, it wasn't. It was the contemporary time period. Yeah, yeah. That was the world as and, it was. And people watching those films now will look back and say, "Well, their period." Yeah, you know, exactly, they're, not, yeah. they're set in the nineteen forties. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that will happen with the Benedict Cumberbatch ones. In 50 years' time, yeah. people will say, oh, yeah. They updated they're, they're, it to the yeah, 2000s. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're set in the 2010s, you know, yeah. when when all this primitive early computer technology was being used, <laughs> you know. Yeah, remember the days when we didn't have, like, um, downloading films straight into your brain? Oh, those <laughs> days, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think Holmes is a character that you, you can do this with because part part of the thing with Holmes is... He's always got to prove himself as being better than the police, you know, and he's he's yeah. he's, he's there to handle the cases that the police can't can't handle, and and that's particularly good in a wartime setting where he's 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 investigating spies and and infiltrating Nazis and things like that, and trying to crack codes and 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 find out where where bombing raids are, are, are going to take place. And this is all out of the, the sort of purview of, of, of the police, really. It's not the sort of work that they do. It's more military intelligence. Mm. And Holmes is a good sort of hookup for that. You know, he's a good person that can be brought in from the outside to get involved in sort of wartime espionage. And I, I, I think these first three Universal films are stronger than people often say I, yeah I, no i agree i mean really good fit for the character i mean me too i think i think, I think they um they establish certain tropes of this universal series that continues on i mean the the closing monologue being one of the uh, one of the criticisms and also features of these films people often either love or hate those closing holmesian monologues yeah, as he ends yeah, you know yeah. I mean, he, he often quotes um, Winston Churchill yeah. 
Um, my my favourite one is in Sherlock Holmes Faces Death, though, uh, from 1943. My favourite writer on the series was the the wonderfully named um, Bertram Milhauser. Mm-hmm. I think he he wrote. If you see his name on the credits, you know you're in for a good time with with Holmes. And um, he came, he he wrote this original piece for the end of Sherlock Holmes Faces Death. And I'll, I've got it written down here. I'll, I'll read some of it out. Now, apply this to 2021. This is written in 1943 by Bertrand Milhauser and delivered brilliantly at the end of Faces Death by Basil Rathbone. And he says, there's a new spirit abroad in the land. The old days of grab and greed are on their way out. Mm-hmm. We're beginning to think of what we owe the other fellow, not just what we're compelled to give him. The time is coming, Watson, when we shan't be able to fill our bellies in comfort while other folk go hungry or sleep in warm beds while others shiver in the cold. That never goes out of date. Well, depressingly, it? depressingly current. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but that's in 1943 and you're, you're right in the middle of a wartime situation there. So it's, it's, it's entirely relevant yeah, yeah. to the, the contemporary audience. And it but wasn't, yeah, it, and it, it wasn't as, um, that, some of the earlier ones are a bit hammy, a bit on the nose, kind of like yeah. this green island, this septic <laughs> land. Yeah. It's like, you know, that, that kind yeah. of... I, I think often, often when they're using literary quotes or they're quoting from Churchill, yeah. they've, they've picked out the ones that, oh, yeah, some, that, there's something that's jumped off the page at the writer. And, yeah, when, when Rathbone comes to deliver it, it is a little bit sort of, well, it's very on the nose. Mm. But I think Milhauser shows with his little speech at the end there from uh, Sherlock Holmes' face as death that when he was writing his own stuff, he, he, could, he could hit it perfectly. And that, yeah. that, that you know, that, that's one for the ages, isn't it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, we, get, we get three different types of war stories with this one don't we we get yeah. the one of like the 39 step style um the one that ends in the church yes yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the um, voice of terror yeah with with a sort of lord haw yeah yeah. Character. yeah yeah um yeah this idea of broadcasts from from who knows where yeah um dishing out the nazi propaganda and and holmes has got to sort of track down who this is and um Again, one one of the sort of continuing uh, things, uh, something they used in more than one film across the Universal series, and and even outside of the the sort of wartime sort of circle, was that they'd have this when when the villain is revealed, it's someone who they've not only known from the start of the film, but is is a mate, you know, he's yeah, he's, yeah. he's like a, a pal or someone who who's an establishment figure that they respect, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, yeah, it's a, a, quite an interesting sort of trope to use across the series. They did do it in three or four of the films and uh, kept coming back to it. But, yeah, it's its first use here um, in in this sort of uh, this sort of traitorous figure, very much in the sort of Lord Haw-Haw style. So it would have had resonance with the audience at the time. Yeah. They would have known from the, the, the national news and the international news that, oh, yeah, there are people like this, you yeah. know, there, there, are, there is a real voice of terror out there, yeah. you know. And, and also radio was the main way of, of, of as we've talked about, of getting across the mass populace. Yeah. and entertainment, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get The Secret Weapon in 1943. Yeah, yeah. And also Sherlock Holmes in Washington in 1943, mm. so two. One of them based on a, a Sherlock Holmes, The Adventures of Dancing Men, which is, you know, loosely adapted. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not a big fan of this one. The Secret Weapon one. 
Yeah, I don't I, think it's, it works. It's, it's one of the lesser entries. The series is sort of finding its feet a little bit. This is only the second Universal one, and they already seem to be running out of ideas a little bit. And as you say, not quite sure how to shoehorn Conan Doyle into yeah. it. I think Bruce and Rathbone are good in it as home, as Watson and Holmes. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a weak entry. When when you look back at the fourteen films in retrospect, it's 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 not one of the ones you'd you'd pick off the shelf, is it? No, and, and also at that time, it's like well, it doesn't matter because in six months' time we've got another one. Yeah, it wasn't even yeah. six months' time; it was like February to April. Yeah, we had a, in, in April we had the next one. We had the Sherlock Holmes in Washington, yeah. which is much more dynamic. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you, we've got plane journeys, we've got train journeys, we've got Washington. Yeah, we've yeah. got. Um, Secret compartments in in antique shops. Um, it's a, a real rollicking adventure, and it probably no surprise that this was a completely original story. Yeah. There was no no didn't have to shoehorn any other home stuff into this one. Sure, um, and and again set the tone for some of the later ones. I think with the... I, I, I think so because um, I mean what you move into next is a five film group where uh, this this comes into sort of my territory because as as quads mr horror mm-hmm. you know we we suddenly get five films um again done in the space of a, about 15 months or something you know <laughs> roy william neal just cranking them out and doing other stuff in between you know um, <laughs> and we get these five films on a sort of macabre sort of tip mm, yeah and in fact the middle three i would actually say are horror films yeah and, and the two outside are sort of old dark house movies or or um, we've got Sherlock Holmes' Face as Death, which we've already mentioned, um, yeah. and The House of Fear, which we've already mentioned, as the bookends. And then in between, you get what are effectively universal horror films of the 1940s. And they're among the three best universal horror films. By this point, their Dracula and Frankenstein series are really on the skid, you know, and the, the mummy films are, are pretty terrible, you know. I mean, I, I love all of those. I love going back to watch the Frankenstein and, and Mummy sequels and, and the Wolfman movies and so on. But, but you know, they're, they're not great. They're running on empty yeah. at that point, these, aren't they? These three Sherlock Holmes films are fantastic universal horror films. Mm. We've got um, The Spider-Woman, which we've mentioned in yeah. passing, The Scarlet Claw and The Pearl of Death. And I think Scarlet Claw and Pearl of Death are arguably the best two films of the series. I think Scarlet Claw's fantastic. It's great. It's It's a proper... I mean, it takes that sort of, like, the mystery of the murder and moves it more into slasher territory where there's a series of murders and they're happening through this movie. Well, what we've got here is two things. We've got the slasher element. Certainly, it is is like a a, a sort of 80s slasher movie. It really is. Mm. It's got that template to it. The great thing that Scarlet Claw does, and this continues in Pearl of Death as well, which has also got a sort of slasher-type uh, sort of template, what those two films do is they bring in character development within the characters of Holmes and Watson. It's rather fascinating because Holmes is a character who is used to dealing with Moriarty types, master criminals, supervillains, but they're people on the same intellectual level as him, you know, and they're people who leave puzzles for him and they leave him to they leave clues for him to work out. And suddenly in both Scarlet Claw and in Pearl of Death, he's facing these waves of slasher murders and he doesn't know what to do. Mm. And Universal write that into the scripts and Rathbone is floundering and not as an actor, but Holmes is floundering as a character. 
And Rathbone manages to play that brilliantly. Mm. He did say around about this period, he said, for God's sake, would it kill us just to have him fail once? Yes, yeah. Because yes. it's like he's, which, it's which of sick course, of... Which, is a Conan Doyle thing, because Conan Doyle wrote a couple of stories where Holmes doesn't solve yeah. the case yeah. and fails, you know. Even one, one famously where he dies, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, um, so it goes right along. It is faithful in, in that sense to, to Conan mm. Doyle in, in that Holmes doesn't always win, you know. And, and, and here, he's, he's completely lost. It's like, this is a new type of case. Where, where are the clues? What, what, what do I do? Yeah. And all he can do is watch as people are killed off one by one. And he genuinely does not know what to do. And Rathbone registers this brilliantly. And of course, the, the one one of the one of the series regulars we've not mentioned is Dennis Hoey mm. as Inspector Lestrade. And Lestrade again is brought in to make Watson look less stupid. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. he, he's, he's 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 the guy who 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 is there to make Watson look clever. You know. Yeah. But as Holmes is floundering, Lestrade comes into his own because suddenly. Actual Scotland Yard police methods can take over, yeah. and he suddenly looks like he knows what he's doing because these are cases that are more in his um, yeah. sort of domain, you know. Mm. And, and Watson gets involved more as well, main, mainly from a medical point of view because people are being slashed or hacked to death, you know. Yeah. And he's able to come in and, and instead of being the bumbling buffoon, he's there. Oh, I, yeah, the, he's, he's describing what the wounds are mm. and what, what's caused them. He's there as a professional, you know. And I think these films are great because of that, because you get genuine character development in these these characters that have become ciphers by this point. We know what Sherlock Holmes is. We know what Nigel Bruce's version of Watson is. We know what Dennis Hoey's version of Inspector Lestrade is. And suddenly, in these two films, Scarlet Claw and Pearl of Death, that all shifts. Mm. Pearl of Death is brilliant because it, it's, a, it's a pretty good adaptation of uh, The Six Napoleons. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the, again, it takes, it takes huge liberties with it, but it is, it's, it's, the I, loose it's structure. as faithful as they yeah. get, I think. The, yeah. the loose yeah. structure is yeah. still there, isn't it? Yeah. It just amps up the violence, I think, uh, with, 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 the, with the, um, the, the Napoleon owners, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And again, what, what you've got is you've got your classic setup of the trio that we mentioned. You, you've got your you've got your supervillain, you've got your femme fatale, played by Evelyn Ankers in this one, I think, who, who again, was a mainstay of the Universal mm. horror films. She was the sort of go-to, uh, um, I, either lady in peril or, or um, uh, occasionally she'd play a sort of villainess. Mm. In, in the Universal Horrors, and again, she's a perfect fit for the Home series. And then, and then you've got your your sort of henchman who does all the killings. And then, in Pearl of Death, of course, it's the great Rondo Hatton. Who, yes, the creeper. Who I, I really think we ought to do an entire podcast on Rondo sometime. Yeah, I'd be up for that definitely. Uh, I think it's rather than rather than sort of go into his history now. But if you don't know him, look him up, read his life story, which is absolutely fascinating, and how he ended up playing monsters in, in cheap horror films in the mid-40s. But he, 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 plays, he plays the Hoxton Creeper in this mm. one, brilliantly named, or as, as, as Dennis Howey describes him, the Oxton Horror. <laughs> and, and again, you've got this idea that this, there's this stolen pearl that has been embedded into one of these six busts of Napoleon, and the villains are trying to find these buffs which have been sold to different people. And the mystery is that the bodies, the, the dead bodies of the victims are found. 
among a mass of broken crockery. Yeah. And it's like, what's what's going on here? Why why are the bodies in all this sort of all uh, in all this shattered? Uh, it is a trope that both Conan Doyle and this series comes back to the sort of like something hidden in a multiple. Um, uh, in multiple, like in this case, Napoleon's busts, but we have it in the in the Christmas turkeys in in in, in the Conan Doyle stories, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we have it later on in uh, Dress to Kill with the uh, music boxes. Yes, yeah, 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 and and the train set one as well, um, Terror by Night. Terror by Night that yeah. has that has a diamond hidden in 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 a well, there's there's like a coffin with a false bottom, and there's yeah, a yeah. missing diamond and. You know, there's various different places it may be, yeah. So, yeah, it it is something that became a bit of a, a, a series regular. But as you say, it goes back to the goes back to the source. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Pearl of Death has, um, as we said, had Rondo Hatton as the killer, and he's this great hulking brute of a man who sort of lumbers in and, and breaks people's backs in this film. Mm. Again, rather rather hideous sort of detail that you know, Absolutely, yeah. quite strong for its time. And one that you you could imagine sort of being brought forward forty years into the slasher era, and again, Holmes doesn't know what to do. He's he's faced with something that he's never faced before, just brutal murder one by one, and all he can do is sort of really stand by and watch as as these people die in front of his eyes. Yeah, and it's great. I think Rathbone plays this version of Holmes really, really well. He's he's so good at playing Holmes as a sort of forensic honing in on the clues, getting the magnifying glass out and studying what's happening. A very scientific yeah. uh, sort of criminal investigator. But he's equally good at playing a Holmes who is faced with something that he's never faced before and not quite knowing how to deal with it. Well, I think that's an interesting, an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I think in other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes and other styles of these kind of heroes, they tend to make them... They tend to try and get around this by making them uh, amazing boxers that could uh, disable a hulking man. So they, they create some reasons why this person can defeat somebody who's miles bigger than them and, yeah. and more powerful than them. And they do that in Superman, and they do it in all these all these different kind of things. They they, they do they create those things. And where in this one, they don't even try. They yeah. say, no, no, he's out of his depth. Yeah, he's yeah. a genius in this field. But here he's out of his depth and, yeah. the, and he can't do anything. The, the scene towards the end of Pearl of Death where you get the inevitable confrontation between the Hoxton Creeper and Sherlock Holmes is terrifying. Mm. You're really, really scared for Rathbone because you think he's, he's not going to get out of this. Mm. He's going to get his back snapped like everyone else. Yeah. And he does. And then the film series ends at that point. <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on 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 that score, that that brings us into um, scenes of Holmes in deadly peril in in the series, often at the hands of Moriarty. Again, one one of the films has Holmes being hypnotised by Moriarty and walking along um, a high ledge, yeah. which of course Moriarty then falls off. As we've said, spoilers. But yeah. It's not really a spoiler because if you see Moriarty in any of the the Universal Sherlock Holmes films. He, he falls off something, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, he's 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 luring Holmes into into a, a supposed hypnotic trance, and and then trying to instruct him to walk off the end of this high building. You know, there's a great scene in one of the Holmes Moriarty confrontations. I forget which, forget which film it is, um, but um, 
It's a reference to Holmes and his drug taking, which, Mm. of course, we get famously at the end of the very first film, the 20th century Fox film, Hand of the Baskervilles, the very famous line at the end of that movie, right at the fade out, where Holmes has solved the crime and he says, oh, I'm I'm going off for a rest now. You know, I've I've done my bit. You know, I'm I'm going off to get some sleep, you know. And and he walks out of the room and you think, oh, right, the film's going to end with Sherlock going off to his his well-earned... sort of bit of shut eye, you know. And as he gets to the door, he turns back and shouts out, oh, Watson, the needle, mm. out of nowhere, you know. So, and um, uh, and I, I, I gather that that few seconds of film has been snipped out of, of some prints over the years. Right. But there's one of the films where Holmes has been captured by Moriarty and he strapped him to a medical, as yeah. like a surgical trolley. And they they have this great sort of um, intellectual conversation about what's the best way to die or the worst way to die or how would you choose to die, you know. And because um, uh, Moriarty saying, oh, Holmes, I'm, I'm going to kill you, but how, how do you want to go, you know. And Rathbone replies by saying, well, I think one really agonizing, slow way to kill someone would be to inject them with a hypodermic and then drain all of their blood out bit by bit. And Moriarty replies to that by saying, "Ah, oh, the, the needle to the end, eh, Holmes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he obviously knows, you know, there, there's a reference to tell us, the audience, Moriarty knows that Holmes has got a drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think that's a brilliant callback to that. And uh, um, Yeah, they don't, they don't dwell on that at all in these series. He's not, he's the hero. Uh, we don't get any sign of weakness generally no, uh, no. in these films. We move on from the horror movie types to, I guess, the last three, where, and particularly Pursuit 12 Years, which really st- stands out as a, as, a, as a big direction change yeah, yeah. after those four or five horror-tinged, macabre-tinged yeah. uh, old well, Dark House well, I'd, types. I'd, I'd put that and Terror by Night together as a, as a pair, really, mm. because they're both set in confined... They're both set on journeys, and yeah. they're set in confined spaces. What these are, are again, to, to bring in the slasher comparison here, these are the Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan of the Sherlock Holmes series, especially Pursuit to Algiers. You see that title, and you think, oh, wow... We're in for a globe-trotting agenda, uh, a, a globe-trotting adventure here, which is obviously going to end up in Algiers, and it's going to be Holmes chasing the villains across Europe and across Africa, you know, uh, to get to the. You know, we're going to see all these exotic locations, and then it all takes place on board a boat. Yeah, you're not getting that in part twelve of a, of a, of a film series <laughs> at all, are you? But, well, but that's the, said, but the that, title suggests that you're going to, which is brilliant. But all, know, all yeah. that said, I really enjoyed this yeah, one. It, it felt it, it, for great. me, it was a, it was like a real adventure romp style yeah, film, yeah. Um, and it had witty exchanges. It had. Watson doing what he does. Yeah, it yeah. has Holmes doing the sort of like, oh, and this is really clever, and I'm going to reveal the real things here now, and being one step ahead of the bad guys at every point, yeah. which well, sometimes can be really annoying. Yeah. But in this one, I felt like it was like, it was enjoyable seeing the lengths that he's gone to to stay one step ahead of, oh, yeah, of, of yeah, the criminals yeah. in this one. We, we've mentioned a lot on the podcast that one of our favourite films here at Quad is Dario Argento's Deep Red, and we, we love the, the hidden in plain sight aspect of Deep Red. And 
in in more than one of these Sherlock Holmes films, but I think best of all in Pursuit to Algiers, mm. you, you you get the hidden in plain sight yeah. reveal. You know, when we find out what's happening at the end of the film, and, and for once we won't we won't spoil it on no. this one because you you need to find out. But when you find out what's happening. And you think, oh, it's been in front of us all yeah, the yeah. time, you know. Uh, it's it's brilliant. It works so well. I th- I th- you mentioned how good Nigel Bruce is in this Yeah, film. he is and good I, in this I, I think Bruce is particularly good in the films when he's in his element, when he's dealing with people of his own class and his own status, people he can sort of get along with. Yeah. And, and on board the ship, he's absolutely in his element. Yeah. Know? It's all about cocktails at dinner and associating with the upper crust and everything. And he, again, Bruce is able to play this. People often say he's a limited actor, but I think across this series, mm. we've talked about Pearl of Death and Scarlet Claw, where you see him at work as a professional doctor, and he, he really comes into his element in a way that Holmes doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And, and then in these later films, where they're on board ships and trains or they're associating with the upper class, you see this side of, of, of Watson come out. It happens as well in House of Fear mm. and in Sherlock Holmes Faces Death as well, among among the sort of macabre batch, where they're dealing with these these sort of clubs, you know, these societies that have been formed by lords or upper class gentlemen. And Watson's part of this. This is his world, you know. Yeah. This is where he lives and exists. When he's when he's not when he's not associating with homes at two twenty one B Baker Street, this is his world, you know. Yeah. And we get glimpses of that in Face Faces Death and in House of Fear, but particularly in these final four films. Uh, like we said earlier on, this is one of those ones where he's been tasked by Holmes to be the lightning rod. He's there to yeah, yeah. draw attention. And, and Just go ahead and be yourself. That's because Holmes recognises that this is Watson's world yeah, yeah. and that he can be of some use here. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. The, the sort of like the killings through the portholes. It was like, yeah, it had a lot that I, I thoroughly engaged with and, yeah. and really enjoyed. And, and if Pursuit to Algiers and Terror by Night have been made primarily because the, the, the series is winding down yeah. at this point, they're running out of money, they've got to do these things on confined um sets you know which you would do the you know we're on a journey but but the film's all taking place on on mm. sets pretending to be ships or trains you know but this this turns out to be almost by accident a really good fit again for these characters you know well, i think i think they're I think, good in confined spaces and they're good yeah. on these journeys where we never, we the audience never go anywhere. Well, I think it's also one of those ones where, where we, like you say, we know the characters yeah, now. Yeah. So when when you are limited by budget, you are limited by sets and etc. You just fall back on that character, and those characters come out, and they're so effortlessly by this point that it, it, it's like a fun, it's fun spending time with these guys now. We're 10, 12, 13 films in. We yeah. can just do that. It's just them doing stuff, and that's 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 enough for us at this point. Sure, they they go beyond the the budgetary mm. restraints. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter how cheap these films are because you've got you've got the instant class there in in the acting of Rathbone and Bruce and the supporting cast. You know, and that that's always going to shine out. You know, that that breaks the 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 the, the bonds of of the limitations of mm-hmm. the series. I think. It's, it's disappointing, I think, that the run ends with Dress to Kill. Now, if, if you're going to watch any film called Dress to Kill, we highly recommend 
the Brian De Palma movie <laughs> yeah. of that name. And if only De Palma had been around to, to direct this one, I think. It's it's good. It, none, of, none of the 14 films are bad, but it's not a great way to go out. It, it, no. It, it, it sort of goes through the motions. It does have a nice moment where he gets outwitted. Yes. Which yes. you don't really, I don't think we've had properly. No. He gets properly outwitted in this one by the female protagonist. Yeah, who's in disguise at the time exactly. as well. Brilliant. He, he yeah. lures yeah. her in and, and, he, and he, he genuinely falls for it. It's not one of those ones where he falls for it and then he goes, well, actually, I knew all along yeah. and, and here's the second reveal, you know, which happens quite a lot in this series. Yeah. You know, you think he's been outwitted, but he knew all along. Mm. But in this one, he genuinely gets outwitted. And, yeah, I, I thought that was a nice little thing to end on in the series. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Dress to Kill is, is, is a good film, but it's nothing you've not seen before. No, it, no. It it's through on. the motions, isn't it? Yeah, it does. It, it's, they've now got beyond the point where they're, they're, they're sort of riffing on, on Conan Doyle and they're riffing on the, the contemporary situation. They're, they're now copying themselves, you know. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're in film 14 or film 12 at Universal and they're now repeating themselves. And Roy William Neal is is borrowing from Roy William Neal. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, so we get we get the series ending here. So Baz Rathbone decides to leave. Yeah. Apparently, Universal and they still had another three years left on the contract that yeah, they'd done yeah. with the, with with Universal. And, and, and they, Bruce Bruce is still desperate to do. And them Bruce, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. So they could they they, they considered replacing him with Tom Conway, That's the right. Falcon yeah. in, in, in the other series, who was also had a year on the radio show of replacing um, Basil Rathbone. So there was, there was potential uh, crossover there. We could have had three to six more Tom Conway Sherlock Holmes yeah. in this I'd, series. I'd, I'd have liked that. Yeah. I can see Conway, especially with, with a, a sort of rebu- reduced budget. He was used to working mm. in B-movie units. He'd, he'd worked in, in some of the Val Luton stuff, and he's, he's in the Falcon films, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Taking over on that series yeah, as well from, yeah, yeah. from George he, Sanders. So. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd have been a very good replacement Holmes, I think. Yeah. And, and again, Moriarty had already been replaced so many times across the franchise that I, I think audiences would have bought a new home. I know? think so too, yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, you think now 70-plus actors have played homes yeah, on screen. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a, a, a trope that people would no, have no problem accepting a new homes now. So, But, uh, yeah, it's a shame we didn't get it. But that's 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 the series. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then Rathbone, having said he wasn't going to come back to the role ever did do he, he he did in tv a few times in the 1950s but uh in pieces that are largely forgotten now yeah, yeah. probably don't even exist i don't know but uh but as as, as we say what a legacy this series mm. had because uh, yeah you, you're right adam everybody has has used this as a template since they they go back to this series rather than going back to conan doyle even if they say they're going back to conan doyle as the jeremy jeremy brett series did there's an awful lot of, of Basil Rathbone in there. Absolutely, and and, and Nigel Bruce as well. So. Let's let's, let's rehabilitate. They, they say there isn't, and fans fans of that show say, "Oh, Edward Hardwick plays Watson as far more of an equal and far more intelligent." I I I can see he's watched his Nigel Bruce. Well, but but even so, just the very fact that Watson is a, it's Holmes and Watson. Yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. is down to Nigel Bruce because yeah. prior to that, it was Sherlock Holmes. Indeed. Yeah, and, yeah. and after that, it was Holmes and Watson. So, cool. There we go. Okay, we are 
all wrapped up. The case is solved, and no doubt Lestrade is taking all the credit. <laughs> thank you for joining me this week, Daryl, and thank you for listening. We will be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page, and if you so desire, why not sign up to our Patreon where you'll receive a bonus episode and early access to the regular releases. And finally, we are looking at topics for us to dive into. So please, if you have anything that you think Adam and Daryl and others should be looking at and taking a deep dive into please send us an email at podcast at darbyquad.co.uk or get in contact on our Facebook page and we'll see what we can do take care for now and we will see you soon